Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and we did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, a theoretical physicist says we should not dismiss the idea of extraterrestrials as wacky sci-fi. We should start from the humbling thought that there is nothing special about us, that we are probably just like ants on a sidewalk. Plus, author David Yoon tells us about the books he and his wife Nicola want to publish under the new YA imprint Joy Revolution. We get to be a boutique imprint focused on you know, love story starring POC, written by POC, with the full backing of the largest publishing house in the country, if not the world. But first, it's our panel on the week that was. With us this week, we have Kat Chow. She's a journalist and writer who used to be on NPR's Code Switch team. She has a memoir coming out next month called Seeing Ghosts. Kat, hey. Hi, thank you for having me on. Oh my gosh, thank you for being here. We also have Joanne Freeman. She's a history professor at Yale, co-host of Now and Then podcast, and the author of the book Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War. Joanne, hey. Hey. I have to say that is a pretty fun title to read. It sounds very (laughs) intense and dramatic. (laughs) That's a great title. Yes, so much more relevant than it started out being. I bet. Joanne's probably been a bit busy. (laughs) Just a, a wee bit. (laughs) That's actually the perfect uh, setup, Kat, because I think we should start this week by talking about work. Um, The New York Times came out with a super interesting essay um, earlier this week. It's by Bryce Covert. She wrote this piece saying that as as people are starting to go back to work and sort of reassess reentry, there are more and more conversations about work from home policies But her whole point is that we should also be talking about the idea of just working less. And there's this great line in the piece. She says, the way to make work work is to cut it back. Um, I'm curious to hear what you think. Um, Let's start with you, Joanne, since you probably have been very busy. From your point of view, I mean, is there anything remotely controversial about that argument to you? Well, the the thing about being an academic is it's like this ongoing, never-ending argument, which is that in one way or another, we never stop working because we kind of have two jobs and one of them is the teaching part of the job and then the other part is the writing and research part of the job. And so there's constantly this like balance of life conversation going on and we should work less. So controversial. I mean, I love the idea of working less, but I think people have been talking about it in the academic world way before the, the pandemic. And actually, the pandemic made me work more because mm-hmm. I had to learn how to teach on Zoom. Well, and I think, too, I mean, one of the arguments in the article is that, you know, the boundaries between work and home were so diminished that so many and, you know, people didn't have anything else to do. So often people (laughs) did do more work just because they were freaked out and anxious and like, sure, I might as well clear out my email inbox if that's a thing I can control during a very intense time, you know? Yeah, totally. And it's the the one element where you 
Yeah, as you were saying, you can control it. You know, I don't think this concept is at all remotely controversial. I was really glad that the writer sort of talked about how, you know, it is a bit of a privilege to be able to say we should cut down on work. Usually it applies to white collar workers. Um, and sort of talked about the disparities in who uh, gets to work and who has, you know, access to more hours or, or whatnot. But as I was thinking through the different, I don't know, solutions that this writer was proposing, I just kept coming back to, you know, everything that is tied to employment and, you know, working 40 hours a week. So, for example, health insurance is so tied to employment for most Americans. And, you know, this is a product of something that happened in the 1920s, a series of accidents, you know, with the Great Depression and World War II and hospitals needing to incentivize people to actually use their services. And so that's how they tied it to a bunch of teachers in Texas. And that's how Blue Cross came about, for example. And so I guess when I think about the history of how work functions in America, I feel a little disheartened that, you know, I don't think that we can really work less, um, unfortunately, unless we really overhaul these systems. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see because you're right that like, I mean, compared with the rest of the world, the United States has always had this sort of hyper work culture, right? Like the rest Mm -hmm. of the world, they're like, August, we'll take August (laughs) off, right? It's like, yeah, sure, in America, we'll take August off. Like we just, we don't act the way other nations do when it comes to just using our time. So you're right. right. I think on the one hand, can we just like poof, say now we're going to change things? No. But on the other hand, everything is so weirdly unprecedented in pandemic Mm. time that, you know, as a historian, I'm, I'm kind of torn in two directions about almost everything I talk about these days. Part of me is like, well, there are deep roots and nothing's unprecedented. Then the other part of me is saying, yeah, but some things are unprecedented in the Mm -hmm. present. And it's, we really don't know Um, sometimes in a given week, but, but certainly what's going to happen, but, but certainly generally speaking, we don't really know how we're going to emerge from this moment. Right. And what we're going to really retain. Exactly. It might just be that this is a moment where there can be some change and, and hopefully some good change. So yeah, why not burn it all down and start over? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe not burn it all down. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know about fires right now. Fair, 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 fair. So, um, I want to move to our next topic, which is uh, kind of COVID, kind of the Olympics. There's a lot of weird things happening out there, y'all. In a set of very interesting COVID-related contradictions, England celebrated Freedom Day, fully reopening for the first time in 17 months. Meanwhile, Los Angeles reinstated its mask mandate indoors and in public spaces. And the Olympics is happening in Tokyo despite a state of emergency there. The city is seeing the highest number of COVID cases since January in Tokyo. And as of Tuesday, more than 70 athletes had tested positive for COVID. I'm curious, are either of you Olympics people? I feel like it's a very specific fandom. Kat? You know, I actually interned at the Olympics um, in Vancouver in college. Yeah, so I have a soft spot for specifically Winter Olympics curling, which I got to work on with NBC. (laughs) Um, Nothing glamorous at all. It was not glamorous. So, yeah. But I mean... I I love watching the Olympics. I think right now, this year, it definitely is uncomfortable, and I haven't really been keeping track as much of what's been happening because 
you know, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic still, and vaccine access is completely not distributed equally among the world. And when you have 15,000 Olympians and Paralympians coming to one city, it's just, it sounds like there's just no good way to go about doing this safely. Um, so that's kind of where I fall. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Joanne? Well, you know, based on what you just said, Kat, about bringing all these people together right now, you know, thinking as a as a historian does, I think, well, if I were writing about this moment, there would be a chapter that would begin. And then they brought all of these people together at, the, at this key moment, right? When when the whole world is in disagreement and there aren't enough vaccines, it would be like this highly symbolic mm-hmm. decision that that, you know, is bound to have difficulty and cause problems. I mean, the so I, I think as I've gotten older, just the idea that when you watch the Olympics, you're seeing like the height of whatever sport you're looking at. And if nothing else, you can appreciate that just the sheer athletic strength and skill it requires to do things that I, I find myself able to watch almost any and everything and be sort of awestruck. I just, mm-hmm. you know, acknowledging how hard these things are and the skill it takes to do them and, and then seeing them carry them out with such seeming ease. But the pandemic component of it, you know, the pandemic is a global, it, it doesn't care about national boundaries, right? It's a global mm-hmm. moment. But the way it's playing out is among a whole bunch of people who are focused on boundaries that aren't affecting it in any way. So it's a weird moment that that both global and, and national are kind of banging up against each other in interesting ways. And I guess the Olympics kind of shows that happening in one moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating way of looking at it, too, because I feel like you can look at it as, you know, it, there's like the optimistic symbolism of, you know, kind of to your point, like all of these amazing people who have worked really hard to be able to get to this level of talent and skill. And then there's also the sort of pessimistic symbolism, which is like, why have we decided to lean into this right. during a global pandemic? Right. You know, right. like, right. is this actually like dangerous and ex- like extremely problematic? You know? Which is also kind of typical, right? Because that's a matter of economics and commerce and capitalism. Right. And, business right. and, and, and so that's also typical of us, too, I suppose. Yeah, I did see. I think it was $16 billion would be the economic hit of canceling them at this point. So like, you know, I mean, that's real, but it's also, I don't know, I think there is something distinctly dystopian to me about, you know, hearing the news spot that's like, and as Tokyo closes down, the Olympics continue. It's just like, oh, we're still doing this. Yeah, exactly. So as if the pandemic weren't enough Olympic drama, there's also been some really interesting stories coming out this week about double standards around uniforms in elite athletic competitions. The women's Norwegian beach handball team was fined by the International Handball Federation for wearing shorts instead of bikinis. Meanwhile, a Paralympic athlete was told that her shorts were too revealing. I think this is really interesting, but I've had a hard time deciding kind of how much anti-misogynist ire I have to put into (laughs) it, just given the state of the world. What do you think, Joanne? Oh, I have plenty of anti-misogynistic ire. (laughs) I have enough to go around. Um, And this is hardly new, right? Double standards of uniforms. You know, you name the place where there are uniforms and there's always been a double standard. 
in this case, you know, the two things you just brought up, Greta, it's like, you're showing too much, you're showing too little, you're, you know, it's like, basically, we just want to have some say over what it is you're showing. So yeah, it's, you know, it's, and I guess, particularly, not only is that about policing women's bodies, but where's all of the eyeballing of whatever the heck men are wearing? Right. I mean, yes, right. Exactly. Right. It was the Paralympic <laughs> athlete who was pointing out that like her male competitors had taken off their shirts and no one was, you know, worried no about dude about nipples, yeah. you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I will say I do feel heartened that Norway's Federation for Handball or, you know, the organization that oversees it seemed supportive of their players. I know that they were getting fined something like 150 euros each, which is really not a, a big, big fine. But I mean, That's it true. just seemed it seems like it's such an easy thing to fix. And it does seem from yeah. the news reports that they will address it. But yeah. it, it is kind of a confounding thing because fabric, even just from a standpoint, doesn't seem to matter that much in terms of, you know, you're not really streamlining your body right. in handball. So right. I just, for mm-hmm. me, my anti-misogynistic ire is just it is exhausting and it's frustrating. <laughs> and I look at this story and I'm like, oh, can't they just fix this? But here's here's a related question. And that mm-hmm. is, is and I might get this wrong. So you guys can, can tell me if I've gotten this wrong. But isn't there also um, a conversation going on right now about swim caps that are large enough to encompass natural black mm-hmm. hair mm-hmm. and that the, there was an international swim federation that said that those would not be acceptable for the Olympics, but now there's been pushback and they're re-evaluating it. In in which case, unlike what you just said, Kat, that actually does maybe affect the water. I don't know. But isn't that yet another rather than gender of a, a race component? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I know that I mean in tennis there was a lot of um restrictions around how you could wear your hair, um, could you wear braids, could you wear beads? And I think that one one thing that I'm curious to see if this just continues in this direction, like and like you said, Joanna, it seems as though it could, is just how open and how um, how how these different organizations are going to be um, when they sort of take in who their players are and how you know their athletes are diversifying, right? Well, and how to make sure that everyone is able to compete, right. you know, like. You'd think you'd want as many different kinds of people in the field as possible, but then you got to reevaluate what the rules are. Right, Right, exactly. And I mean, to bring it back to the handball federation issue, some people were saying that um, they didn't even want to participate in the Olympics because of these rules and they didn't want to Mm -hmm. wear the bikini bottoms. And I guess if, you know, you're thinking about who is deciding not to participate, that's just really sort of, that's so frustrating. Right. Yeah, that's a loss for sure. So if you're not watching the Olympics this weekend, we've got good news for you. There are a couple pretty great shows that have seasons two that just came out. Uh, Never Have I Ever came out last weekend on Netflix. That's one that's executive produced by Mindy Kaling, which is excellent. I am super thrilled to binge Ted Lasso hard. That one's on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Kat, have you seen Ted Lasso? Are you a Ted Lasso person? I am a Ted Lasso fan. You know, it's just such a feel-good show, and I think it, it has really felt like a bomb. I love watching TV. I watch so much of it. Um, I'm particularly <laughs> excited about, you know, a potential new season of Pen15 and Succession, mm. which are all very, very different shows, but they kind of yes. just hit different sweet spots for me, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Have you seen it, Joanne? You know, I am the last human being who has not seen <laughs> Ted Lasso. And it, it's talked about so much on, on social media and everywhere else that it's like at the top of my list. But 
I watched I watched so much TV during the pandemic. I <laughs> I binged. But the thing about my TV watching was I was like catching up on all of the things that I didn't watch before. So mm. Ted Lasso is like frighteningly contemporary <laughs> to me. But you know, for the first time I watched The Sopranos oh, and I watched oh, wow. Deadwood, you know, I and not that. only ones that everybody watched, but like ones that like the one that got me stuck for a while and then they stopped translating episodes was this Chinese, I guess, soap opera called Empresses in the Palace. Have you guys heard of this? I have not heard of it. Okay, I totally... I'm I'm like not normally um, subtitles. I, I have to be in the mood to be reading subtitles. Right. right um, yeah. But this was really, you know, a really well done, but definitely soapy Chinese mm. drama with subtitles. Originally, when it was in China, apparently it had like 70 episodes. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. And they made a condensed version of it for Americans that had, hmm. I don't know, 15 or 20, which I watched. And then I was like, hey, wait a minute, somewhere out there. <laughs> There are 50 more episodes. So I got through like an additional 30 and then I stopped wow. translating, right? So all of a sudden there was no English, but it was so well done. And the fact that I watched like 50 episodes of a Chinese soap opera is just all you need to know about the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kat, Joanne, thank you both so much. This was such a pleasure. Kat, good luck on book tour. And Joanne, good luck with fall semester. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for inviting me. A few weeks ago, the Pentagon released a report about unidentified flying objects. Essentially, it said, yeah, we've seen them and we're not sure what they are. As of now, there is no real evidence that these things are in fact extraterrestrial in origin, but there's also no real evidence ruling that out, which means we kind of have a real life mystery on our hands. So here to help us unpack it is Dr. Avi Loeb. He's a theoretical physicist, a Harvard professor, and the author of several books, including most recently Extraterrestrial. Dr. Loeb, welcome to Nerdette. Thanks for having me. So I think we should start with this report. I'm curious what your takeaways were. I mean, were you surprised by anything that was in there? Well, the most significant statement was that some of the objects are real because they were detected by multiple instruments uh, an infrared uh, sensor in some cases, uh, optical camera, uh, radar system, and uh, many eyewitnesses that noticed the same thing uh, doing the same thing. And uh, that implies that some of the objects are real. And, and and what do you mean by real? You mean real things from other planets that have come to Earth? Uh, no, not, not necessarily, but they are not smudged on the camera. They're not malfunction of the instrument. And they are not illusions of the, mm. of the pilots that reported them, the military personnel. So that's extremely important because th- that's the first suspicion you might have that uh, if one of the instruments doesn't function, you might see something that is not real. Uh, and mm. the, another testimony to that is uh, that uh, people that saw the classified data, such as uh, you know former presidents uh, Clinton and Obama and former CIA directors uh, Brennan and Woolsey and other high-level officials that we trust, uh, said that it's a serious matter that these are real objects and we don't know the nature of uh, of them. And of course. Uh, one may worry about national security threat um, if they were produced by other nations. But I think that this report would not come out if it was clear that they behave in a way that our technologies can imitate. 
Mm. So do you think this is going to change the public view? No. I was asked actually at a forum um, uh, a month ago, how long do I think that uh, our civilization can ignore evidence uh, about the extraterrestrial cultures out there? And I said, in principle, forever. Hmm. If we decide to stick by our conviction and claim that we are the smartest and we close the curtains on our windows and not look out, then, of course, we will never find a smarter kid on the block. But Hmm. uh, that doesn't mean that such a kid is not out there. It just means that we maintain our ignorance. And, of course, you can say, "Let show me extraordinary evidence before I will contemplate this possibility. Well, guess what? When the extraordinary evidence comes along, you know, if someone knocks on your door, it's a bit late. Uh, It's better to know in advance the reality that you live in. And that's what science is supposed to be about, collecting as much evidence as possible so that we have a good assessment of the reality that we live in. And when you say the reality that we live in, I mean, for you, it's not a question of whether there is intelligent life outside Earth or the universe, right? Yeah, well, um, the point is that early on in our uh, cultural development, we believe that we are the center of the world, uh, Mm -hmm. of the universe, and uh, that is not the case. I mean, that was flattering to our ego. Now, (laughs) not only that, but now we know that even the Earth-Sun system is not special, that what we find in our backyard is very common, that half of the sun-like stars have a planet roughly the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. And that means that if you arrange for similar circumstances in many other, you know, tens of billions of other Earth-Sun systems within the Milky Way galaxy alone, and and there are trillions of galaxies like the Milky Way in the observable volume of the universe, then you might as well get the same outcome out of these circumstances. We, We should start from the humbling thought that there is nothing special about us, that we are probably just like ants on a sidewalk, that there are lots of things like us that existed in the past. So this is a possibility that we have to consider. And the only way to figure out if they are out there is by searching for evidence. I want to go back to something you said. Did you say in a billion years? Yeah, because the age of the universe is 13.8 billion years. So most of the stars actually in the universe formed billions of years before the sun. The sun is a relatively latecomer to the game. And therefore, you know, there could be a lot of technological civilizations that predated us. They may not be around anymore, but they could have sent equipment that is around. And even if those civilizations are dead, whatever they sent uh, can still be around. So yeah, tell us more about that. You you're saying that that is that could be extraterrestrial. Would you call it extraterrestrial life or? No, it's not really life. I would call it equipment. Uh, but okay. My point is, we can get that data. We have uh, the instruments and telescopes. And the worst thing we can do is just ignore that possibility and say business as usual. And mm-hmm. the way to clarify whether an object is artificial or natural whether uh, when you walk on the beach, uh, you're seeing a rock or a plastic bottle, uh, there is a simple way to to clarify that by taking a high-resolution photograph. Uh, Suppose we have a high-resolution photograph of uh, an unidentified object 
and we see that it looks like a technological equipment from another civilization. In other words, we can read the label saying made on exoplanet X <laughs> rather than made in China or made in Russia. Or, mm -hmm. um, uh, and so um, if we do find that, um, first of all, you know, it would be a huge uh, revelation that, you know, we are not uh, necessarily the smartest kid on the block. Um, but uh, in addition to that, you know, we can, of course, Uh, learn from it and, and, and it will help us develop perhaps technologies that represent our future. Interesting. So what would you say to someone who, you know, looked at the data and said, well, if there are billions and trillions of planets where intelligent life could have emerged and they've had hypothetically billions of years to develop and launch technology that could find its way to our field of vision, you know, why hasn't that happened? Like, isn't the lack of any proof, its own form of evidence at this point? Yeah, so I think uh, this, uh, uh, the, the large numbers of, of systems that could uh, look just like the Earth and the Sun uh, implies that we should do the search. It, it should lead us, first of all, to modesty in the sense that, you know, we are not special, we are not unique. Uh, things like us may exist in many places. And therefore, the only way to find out is by searching. There are many questions in science where you don't know the answer in advance. For example, what is the nature of most of the matter in the universe? We call it dark matter. Right. It's six times more abundant than ordinary matter than, that we are made and of. We have no idea. <laughs> we have no idea. We are searching in the dark. And a lot of scientists suggested popular ideas that were embraced by the mainstream scientific community, and hundreds of millions of dollars were spent in searching in those directions. We didn't find anything yet. And I wouldn't say that it was a waste of money and time, even though you know, it took four decades to just put limits on the ideas that were proposed four decades ago, and it cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. It's not a waste because that's part of the scientific process. Why not just, uh, you know, it's a fishing expedition, just like in the search for dark matter. Why not throw out the hook, invest, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, even not hundreds of millions of dollars, just tens of millions of dollars can um, clear up the fog, at least with respect to UAP. And that's uh, the kind of project that I'm trying to lead. Hmm. And just to clarify, when you say UAP, you mean unidentified aerial phenomenon, right? Yeah, it used to be called the UFOs, uh, unidentified flying objects. It's something that behaves in ways that we cannot easily explain. And as a result, uh, we want more data about it. Hmm. So then how much also are you thinking about, you know, ideas about making contact and, you know, whether or not we're communicating with this civilization versus learning about their technology? Those to me seem like two very different feats also. Yeah, well, you see, the um, Darwinian evolution did not really prepare us for space travel. <laughs> uh, we we are prepared to live here on the surface of Earth. Uh, uh, and uh, a, a biological creature like ours would not really survive the journey. It takes light four years to reach the nearest star and tens of thousands of years to cross the galaxy. So to me, it sounds most plausible that if we establish contact, physical contact, uh, it will be with technological equipment. Do you think we will find definitive proof of extraterrestrial life in, in your lifetime? Oh, definitely, if we search. Uh, 
so as long as we open the curtains on our windows and use the instruments we have, I think we will find something. And as soon as we start to behave that way, we might get a message saying, welcome to the Interstellar Club. I love that. Well, here's to the humanity's personal growth, we'll call it. <laughs> Dr. Loeb, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. Thanks for inviting me. In just a minute, David Yoon is going to tell us about the publishing imprint he and his wife Nicola have. It's called Joy Revolution, and it's all about ushering a bunch of YA romance novels starring people of color out into the world. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next guest is David Yoon. As you may already know, this month's book club pick is David's latest book. It's called Version Zero. He was on the show talking about it earlier this month. It's a kind of philosophical conversation about the internet. I thought it was super interesting. We had so much good stuff to talk about that we couldn't fit it all into one episode. So lucky for you, we're bringing you a little extra today. This time we are talking all about a super cool project that David is working on with his wife, Nicola Yoon. You might know Nicola because she wrote books like The Sun is Also a Star, and Everything, Everything, and most recently, Instructions for Dancing. Together, these two are pretty much a YA power couple, and they are doubling down on that with their new publishing imprint. It's called Joy Revolution, and essentially, the Yoons are going to find authors and stories that fit the vibe they're going for and turn them into real-life books that we get to read. So let's get to the conversation. So, David, this imprint is all about prioritizing love stories of people of color, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So how did that come to be? I mean, what what are you hoping to make happen with that? Well, I mean, we Nikki and I met in, in grad school at Emerson for our writing degrees. And we both quickly discovered that we're total romantic goobers. And, you know, <laughs> we both love rom-coms. And, and like all of our favorite rom-coms have no people of color in them. It's just, hmm. it's not just like few POC, it's no POC. And so before we knew anything about writing or before we even published, we were like, it'd be great to have, you know, throw in like a thousand bucks and just have a, sto- a short story contest for people of color. And we had no idea what the hell we were talking about until, you know, hmm. fast forward years later, we get both get published. And now we find that we're both in a position and also in a moment this is after the George Floyd reckoning where, you know, especially publishers were super aware of the fact that their industry is almost entirely white. And so we, we suggested an imprint because now we knew what an imprint was to, <laughs> to random house kids, president Barbara Marcus. And, you know, she thought about it for like a second and was like, yes, I'm down. And so we get to be a boutique imprint 
um, four to five titles a year focused on, you know, love stories, specifically love stories, starring POC, uh, written by POC, with the full backing of, you know, the largest publishing house in, in the country, if not the world. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. a great place to be. And this is a, it's sort of a supplement to issue books where we talk about the struggle. And we, we need to have these books about the struggle because a lot of people don't fully understand the struggle and a lot of people forget the struggle, but not everything can be about pain. And so we want to tell a side of the story that is not pain, but joy. And that's why we call it Joy Revolution. Yeah, it seems really important in terms of, I mean, I was just talking a couple of weeks ago with the indigenous actor, Michael Gray Eyes, and he's in a new show. It's a comedy called Rutherford Falls. And he talked about like what a deep pleasure it is for him to just like be able to have this joyful character in his life. Oh yeah. Yeah. And how, you know, it seems like so often for people of color, the stories that were told were so often just about trauma, you know, mm-hmm. which I think isn't is adjacent to the struggle, if not the struggle, right? And, totally. And yeah. so to just like expand what those definitions are, mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. And I don't know. It just feels to me like everybody wins. Yeah, you know? I, I think so too. I mean, you know, we're we're going for like the Harold and Kumar ideal, right? Which was <laughs> I love that movie, and I was blo- I had no idea how it got made. It was the '90s, I guess, and it was like <laughs> just a Korean American dude and Indian American dude, and a couple of stoners who just want to get high and get burgers, and that was it. Looks like you guys had some night, huh? I want thirty sliders, five French fries, and four large cherry cokes. I want the same, except make mine diet cokes, Chuck. Wow, uh, well, that <laughs> really was it. Yeah, and it was it was like I was pumping my fist in the theater. It was that good, and you know we're. The logo for Joy Revolution is like a little Flintstone house. I call it the Flintstone shelter with a heart inside. And it's a shelter. It's a place that's safe space for your heart to just be free and explore oh. the full breadth of your humanity. Because I'm, you know, I, we talk about the, the moment of dread. Um, Nikki's got it. I've got it. We're watching some movie and like the Asian character comes on and mm-hmm. it's never an Asian male. So that's, that's the rare unicorn. It's always Asian female. Right. But when it's the mm-hmm. Asian male, I tense up because I'm waiting for that Kung Fu martial arts reference, Mm -hmm. or I'm waiting for the super thick foreign accent. Um, And Nikki is waiting for the sassy black female character sidekick who is, you know, like cartoonishly tough and, but also weirdly Mm -hmm. asexual. And that's the moment of dread that we're, that we really want to eliminate with Joy Revolution. We want to give, especially POC readers, um, but everybody, a dread-free reading experience so they can just like be swept away by the story and just enjoy themselves. I feel like you should do a little, like a sticker on the front that says dread-free reading experience. (laughs) I think that's really lovely. Contains no dread. Exactly. It's all good. (laughs) It's all good here. So um, you mentioned this is still fairly new. Have you published anything under it yet? Uh, No, we've just been like, like swimming through manuscripts and it's been, it's been amazing to see just the quality and quantity of stuff that is dying to be published. And, you know, we've settled on three titles so far that we're really psyched about. Um, one is like a bodice ripper. Yes. Yeah. It's awesome. It's it's like, <laughs> and it's like very Bridgerton-esque. Um, a lot of, a lot of scheming, <laughs> scheming and revenge and, and revelations at like gorgeous galas, you know? Yes. Yeah. So stuff like that, that, that really gets us excited. 
that's so cool. Can when that comes out, can I have you and Nicola back on? I think that would be such a pleasure. Oh, that, we'd love that. Yeah, for sure. And I forgot to mention, we got Talia Hibbert. No kidding. Yeah, dude. That's huge. Yeah. When we we, we high five a little too hard, like my hands hurt when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, David, seriously, this was such a treat to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Take care. David Yoon is the author of Version Zero, which you know is the July Nerdette Book Club selection. You can hear a full discussion of that book coming up in the feed this Tuesday. All right, that's it for the show. If you like Nerdette, you could do us a solid and write us a little review of the show on your preferred podcast app. It actually makes a really big difference and we would certainly appreciate it. And hey, we have a newsletter that's pretty nifty. It's full of recommendations and it comes out every Friday morning. You can sign up for it at wbez.org slash nerdetteaf. All right, see you all next week. Hello. Okay, track three. Our next guest is David Yoon. As you may already know, this month's Nerdette Book Club pick is David's latest book. It's called Virgin Virgin Zero. (gasps) How did that not happen before? Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.